really probably my favorite book of the Bible. And I said this last week, but one of the reasons why it's my favorite is because it is split really in half. The first half being a whole lot of information about what is true about you and I because of what Jesus has done for us. And the second really being, okay, what do we do about that? How do we put that into practice? We're going to be here now in week two of still digging into what is true about what Jesus has done for us. And it's amazing. We saw last week Paul go on this incredibly long sentence, just chock full of wonderful theology. And he pauses then to pray, asking God that his hearers would believe those things. That's our prayer as well, that we would believe what is true about us. Let's ask God in song now to open his word to us. Let's just stay seated as we sing, asking God to speak through his word. Listen now to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 through 22. Sorry, verses 15 through 23. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, so that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward those of us who believe, according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet, and he gave him as head over all things to his church, to his body, the church, (laughs) to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the word of the Lord. I was talking to somebody not too long ago, and he was explaining to me really a crisis point in his life, of feeling like, here I am kind of at the middle of my life, and I have this desire now to stop skating through life, to live life in a deeper way, more meaningful, to connect to something that is bigger than me. 
Like, how am I going to, what's the purpose of my life? What's the direction? How am I going to raise my kids? What am I going to do with my life? How do I connect with something that's bigger than just what I do on an everyday basis? Maybe you've asked that question. If you are here and you are exploring Christianity or you're not sure what you believe, maybe you've put those words to it. I have a desire to connect with something that's bigger than me. I don't know yet know what it is, but I know that there's something else out there. If you're a Christian, I think you've also struggled with the same thing. You've probably just put other words to it. The words that say, what does it mean for me to know God more deeply? How do I know the Lord more deeply and follow Jesus more fully? How does my life actually become more and more conformed to His image and less and less conformed to the things that feel like they oftentimes drive me? How do I live my life in a deeper fuller way what Paul says here is that there is one way there's one answer to that question but we oftentimes throw in some others don't we in fact you heard allusions I think to a couple of other answers when uh, when Emily read that parable of the prodigal son you heard the allusion to the one answer that is the way of individualism To say, the way that I find a deeper, fuller, richer life is not so much in knowing God, but in knowing me. I get to know my own hopes and dreams better, and that will drive me. I've got to be true to who I am, and that's how I come to find a deeper, fuller life. But there are problems with that, right? Because what if the true of who you are isn't really the person you want it to be? Or what if it changes? What if the true you is one thing one day and something else another? You never really know where you stand, do you? You heard also another answer in that parable, the answer of moralism. It's really the answer of the older brother in that that parable. And what moralism says is the way that I come to know God more deeply, the way that I come to find a more fruitful, fuller life with purpose is I simply just obey the rules. Give me the rules, lay it out for me, and I'll do it. What kind of penance do I have to do? What kind of activity do I have to do? What kind of things do I have to put on this side of the balance sheet that balances out all this other stuff that I know is on this side of the balance sheet and makes me kind of think, feel like I'm okay with God? But there are problems with that approach too, aren't there? Because what if it's not balancing all the time? What if you're having a really bad day? What if really what you're doing isn't cutting it? Can you ever feel secure? What Paul lays out for us here though in Ephesians, and particularly in this passage, is that if we want to have, if we want to know God more fully, and have a life that feels like it's deeper and more connected and has more purpose, that really what we need to do is not know the rules better, or not even know ourselves better, but we've got to come to understand the gospel more deeply. The path toward deeper knowledge of God and the path toward deeper and more purposeful living is actually a deeper understanding of the gospel. Paul, again, in the midst of this amazing chapter where he just starts pouring out all that is true about Christians, that they have been chosen in love, that they have been adopted, that they have been uh, washed with the blood of Christ, that they have been brought into God's household, that they have been poured over with God's love. He's just pouring out all of this amazing truth and he just pauses in the midst of that and he stops and he starts praying. Did you notice that? Right in the middle of this chapter, Paul just kind of breaks into prayer. And his prayer, in essence, is, 
Lord, help them know these things. It's true, but I know that they're not going to believe it. So will you open their eyes? Will you open their hearts? Will you open them to the truth that will change them? To know that the way toward deeper knowledge of God and deeper living is actually a deeper understanding of the gospel. And he lays it out for them really in three pretty big categories of what he wants them to know. He prays, Lord, open the eyes of their hearts so that they will know these three things. Hope, the hope that you've called them to, the glorious wealth of inheritance that they have in the saints, and also then the power, the power that is available to them, that same power that actually raised Jesus from the dead. We're going to look at those three things this morning. We'll break it into those categories and see what it is like to come to know the gospel more deeply in a way that changes us. Let's look at that first one now. Hope. What do we mean by that? Well, let me just read again this verse. Verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. The hope that he's actually made us a part of because of what Jesus has done. If you were here last week, what we talked about is this cosmic redemptive plan that God is about right now and he's doing through Jesus. That if you look at the world and you just kind of said, okay, describe to me humanity. Here's the quick story of humanity. Created good by God, broken by sin, and now in the midst of redemption through Jesus. So we can at both, uh, we can at the same time be able to say, our world is not the way that it's supposed to be. And that's pretty easy if you just look around and you see that hurricanes uh, hit places and people die when they're not supposed to and terrible things happen every day. Whenever you wake up and you turn on the news, that's pretty much the news. Your world is not the way it's supposed to be. But what is also an equally true is that our world is not the way that it one day will be. Is that God is actually doing something about the brokenness of the world. That He is in the process of redemption. And that, friends, gives us hope. Because when we go about life in, the broke, in, in, in this broken world that we live in, I tell you what, it can, it can create some serious anxiety. Because you don't know what's coming next. <laughs> you may be like the Martells who went on a vacation and a hurricane hit. You don't know that that's going to happen. There is a lot of fear and anxiety that comes up. And the antidote to that actually is the hope that we've been called to that God is doing something in the world. That God is actually making things new. There was an article about fear in the Huffington Post not too long ago, and it was talking about uh, childhood fears versus adult fears. Listen to kind of how it lays them out beside each other. Childhood fear, doctors. Adult fear, Dr. Bills. Child fear, bad dreams. Adult fear, unfulfilled dreams. Child fear, strangers. Adult fear, crippling social anxiety. Child fear, clowns. Adult fear, clowns. (laughs) What was interesting about this article, and it makes a funny connection there at the end, but really if you see there's a connection in all of those, right? So the same kind of threads really still run through us as both children and adults. We're afraid of the things that we don't see coming. We're afraid of the things that we can't recognize. We're afraid of the things that we can't control. And friends, here's the thing. 
you will never be able to live this side of heaven. You will never be able to live in the world in a world where that is taken away from you. You'll never be able to live in a world where you don't have uncertainty. There will always be uncertainty. But because you are united to Jesus, you can live in a world where that uncertainty is replaced by hope. Hope just grows so big in us that it begins to push out everything else. It begins to push out fear and anxiety. It begins to push out not uncertainty, but the fear of it. It pushes it out because we know that God is doing something and we get to cling to that hope. There's a reason why we chose that word as the name for our church. It is a deeply human word. It is something that all human beings, I think, ask. They ask that question, is there hope in the world? Is there anything worth me moving toward, living for, thinking about, dreaming about? Is there any hope for me? It is a deeply human word. And it is also a deeply Christian word. Because what our Lord has told us is that He is making all things new. There will be a time where there is no more uncertainty. There will be a time where there is no more crying. There is no more mourning. There will be a time where there is no more difficulty. That is the hope that we have been brought into, friends. And that is the hope that Paul prays that we would know. (laughs) That if we want a deeper, more purposeful, more full life, he prays that we would know the hope of the gospel more fully. That's my prayer for us this morning as well. How about the second one? Inheritance or wealth. He continues on in verse 18 saying, Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Now what does he mean by that? What does he mean when he says that you would know the riches of his glorious inheritance? Well actually scholars debate about what this means and there are kind of two options for us. The first option is that what he's talking about is the inheritance that we get by virtue of being united to Christ. The inheritance of God's amazing spiritual wealth. Those who are spiritually bankrupt get the blessings of forgiveness and of adoption and of love and all of that good stuff that we talked about last week. So we get this amazing inheritance. We get all the riches of heaven by being made children of the king. And you saw that, right, in the parable of the prodigal son. That the younger son, when he comes home, what does his father say? He doesn't say, here's the, here's the list of jobs that you need to do to kind of earn back your position. No, he runs out to him. He throws his arms around him and he says to his servants, let's throw a party. Because all that I have belongs to my sons. And so let's celebrate. And you see the son actually coming into his inheritance. Even though he's already spent it technically, the father is still lavishing his inheritance on this son. It's beautiful. But there's something else going on in that story and I think something else going on in this passage too. Because as you kind of finish up that story and you see the older brother who's standing far off and who's complaining and he says, you know, Father, you never threw me a party. And what does the father say at the end? He says, Son, all that I have is yours. And he says so in a way that is so loving where he welcomes the wandering son and he welcomes also the son who has stayed. And you get the feeling that the inheritance is not just for the kids. It's for the father. The father's glory is to have his sons there. He's throwing a party because his son is back. 
The Bible actually says in many places that we are God's inheritance. That's kind of crazy to think about, isn't it? But that we are actually His treasured possession. We are His treasured possession that He wills to Himself. He writes His will and He gives it to Himself because it's His most treasured possession. Is us, the church. So not only are we given the inheritance of God and the wonderful spiritual riches, but actually we get to come into His inheritance as part of it. It's incredibly humbling, isn't it? And if that inheritance is the church, then guess what? It's you. We get us. Part of that inheritance is that we get to be part of the blessing of being His people. Brought into that goodness in a way that's just astounding. I hope this is encouragement to you. That as you ask that question, what does it look like for me to connect with something bigger? What does it look like for me to know God more deeply? That the answer is, know the truth of what He has made you to be. That He has brought you into not only His glorious inheritance, but He's even made you His inheritance. With, along with His people. Let's move to that third one then. Power. What does it mean that Paul would say that we have not only been given a hope and given a glorious inheritance, but this, that he says, that you would know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. And then he goes on to say what kind of power that is. The kind of power worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. What Paul is saying is that the power that is available to us is not only God's power, but it's God's power that's been displayed in raising Jesus from the dead. That's pretty powerful, friends. Let me just say, if you are struggling with a, with sin in your life that you feel like is reigning, that you feel like is controlling you, that you feel like has a grip on your throat, let me remind you that the real power at work is Christ's redemptive power. He has come actually to destroy that sin. He has come to reign. And that power is available to us. We are not helpless in that. We have been given the power of the gospel to be able to follow Christ. To be able to turn from sin in repentance and turn to Jesus in faith. That is the power that is available to us. Will you live in that power really is the question. Will we come and lay ourselves before that power? The truth is, it is the only power. And we oftentimes turn to different things. In Ephesus in the first century, where where Paul is writing this letter, they were struggling with different things than we do. Oftentimes what they were actually struggling against was was magic and witchcraft. So the idea that there was some sort of cosmic power that you could tap into that would relieve any kind of anxiety or trouble in your life, that was this idea of some sort of cultic experience of magic and witchcraft. So they were oftentimes drawn to that. And what Paul is telling them is there's no power in those things, but there is power in the gospel. Now, most of us don't struggle in those ways. Most of us are not tempted by witchcraft or magic, although there are certainly places in the world where that is still a temptation. But listen, we're tempted toward many other sources of power, aren't we? We're tempted toward thinking, my life will be okay, and everything will be put right if I could just do this one thing. And most of them are really good things. I want you to hear me say this really clearly. Two things. Um, One is that I think a lot of good has been done with 
anti-anxiety and anti-depression medication. Okay? A lot of good has been done. But hear me really clearly. Prozac does not have the power to raise anyone from the dead. Jesus does. Setting out on a good, healthy eating plan and a good exercise program is really good for you. It could do a lot of real good for your life. But the keto diet never raised anyone from the dead. Having a nice savings plan and a retirement plan and a wise investment strategy, those are good and wise things to pursue. But an investment strategy never raised anyone from the dead. The real power, the power of the resurrected Christ is given to us in the gospel. It is not found in other places. Will you seek that? Will you seek that above and before all else? Let me finish just with this by saying that um, these things that we're talking about, this hope, this wealth of inheritance, this power that's given to us, they're amazing things. But they really work exclusively. (laughs) Once we start piling up other things on top of them and thinking, okay, yeah, there's Jesus. But, you know, also, there's all of this other stuff. Whether that's building my career or my business or my family or whatever it is. I read a story not too long ago um, about this woman... 67-year-old woman who went in for cataract surgery because she was having a really hard time seeing. Particularly out of her right eye, she was having a hard time seeing. It was very clouded. And so they went in and they started they, they started to go about the surgery and they opened up her eye, the surgeon getting ready to, to start his work, and they realized that there were extra contact lenses in her eye. And when I say extra, what I mean is 27 27 old contact lenses in her right eye. There was a reason why she couldn't see. Okay? Because it was all these old contacts that had piled up in her eye. Now, I doubt most of you leave your contacts in for 35 years like this woman did. But oftentimes we do that spiritually, don't we? We just kind of pile up things in our lives that we think, this is what's going to make me see most clearly. When Paul prays that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened, that our eyes would be opened, what he is also praying, I think, is that those things that we oftentimes think are going to help us see more clearly would be taken away. That God would actually take out the things that we think are going to help us see but are actually clouding our vision. That he would retrain in us an imagination of what it's like to live a more fuller, more purposeful life. I want to end this, this quote by Eugene Peterson about retraining our imaginations. Just listen to what he says here. God is retraining our imaginations to understand ourselves not in terms of how we feel about ourselves and not in terms of how others treat us, but as how God feels about us and how God treats us. Not as our parents or our teachers or our physicians or our employers or our children define us, but God. Not in terms derived from our employment or our education or our physical appearance or our achievements or our failures, but God. That's what the Lord is asking of us this morning, to retrain our imaginations. So I want you to just imagine with me for a second. Imagine what your world would be like if hope were actually the central piece of your life rather than fear or anxiety. 
Imagine what your life would be like if you were able to live in the immeasurable riches of the inheritance that you have in Christ rather than to live kind of out of some sort of scarcity, always trying to get more to make yourself feel better. Imagine what it would be to live in the power of the resurrected Christ rather than to feel feel powerless all the time. This is the truth of what Jesus has done for us and the truth of what he has called us to. Let's pray that he would make that real to us even now. Our Father, we thank you for this prayer of Paul's that he prays not only for the Ephesian church, but that he prays over us. And so we pray it even this morning. In fact, we pray it with these, his words, that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that you would enlighten us to know the hope that you've called us to the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints and the immeasurable greatness of your power. Lord, will you show us what it means to be united to the risen Christ? Work in us this morning through your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.